Welcome to the What is Truth podcast. This is Pastor Sam, and today I'm joined by, as always, the great philosopher, Travis Webb. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing good, and I'm just going to give up on trying to fight that. <laughs> well, I mean, somebody has to be the great philosopher, and it's not going to be me, so might as well be you, right? Well, I don't think it's going to be me today either, because we're going to be going over today one of the greatest philosophers of all time, Aristotle. What does he know? You know, he didn't even know how to charge an iPhone. No, but I don't think they had anything even somewhat similar to an iPhone, so... Yeah, well, I'm just saying, how can you be a great philosopher and not even know how to charge an iPhone? That is a debate for another time. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, we're going to be talking about Aristotle today, is that correct? Yes, and specifically his work, uh, I'm going to call it Nicomachean Ethics. I've heard a lot of people pronounce that very differently, but that's what I'm going to call it. Hey, sounds good to me. Nicomachean Ethics. And so uh, we're going to be going over that. Now, he has obviously several works, um, but we're going to be basically hitting on one of his more ethical works instead of his uh, political work, although we might touch just a little bit on some of his political philosophy. Is that correct? Uh, We might just a bit. I'd say that would be very fair. Now, you said uh, Aristotle is, you know, one of the greatest philosophers of all time. Um, He's not a young guy by any means. Uh, No, he lived uh, around the same time as Plato, uh, as we looked at in our last episode. He was actually one of Plato's students at the academy. So Aristotle lived about 2,500 years ago. Uh, He was uh, not actually Greek, but he was Macedonian, which uh, for us today, that doesn't really seem like very different for us. But at the time, and in that culture, that was a... A uh, very big distinction. Well, it's interesting too is uh, you you make mention here that there's a big distinction between being Greek and Macedonian, because uh, though Aristotle went to the academy and um, learned under Plato, he was by no means a a true disciple of Plato. Uh, though I mean, technically he might have been considered a disciple of Plato for a little bit. Uh, he kind of was the opposite of Plato eventually. Yes. So. Aristotle, a lot of his views were in stark contrast to Plato's. Uh, uh, One example is that Plato thought everything could be uh, determined or deduced through sheer logic, whereas Aristotle uh, believed that it wasn't ever uh, could be proven true until it was observed and you had evidence behind that, Uh, which is one of the reasons why Plato... Uh, never ventured from philosophy, whereas Aristotle, uh, not only was he a great philosopher and uh, a political scientist of his time, but he also was the founder of modern biology, Uh, wrote works on astronomy and physics as well. So would this be uh, right to say that Plato was very much uh, deductive in his reasoning and Aristotle is very much inductive in his reasoning? I would say that would be pretty fair. So... Uh, that's if you want to find out more about that, we went over that. I think that was in the first episode of the Wit Pod here of the What Is Truth podcast. The first episode or the second episode it was in one of those. I recommend you listen to both. Right, I, I all three so far, and uh, this is the fourth one. And so, getting into, is there anything else we need to know about Aristotle um, before we we dive into kind of what he thought and taught in Nicomachean Ethics? Uh, yeah, so let's go over just a little bit about his life. So. Uh, As we just spoke about, he uh, did go and uh, study at Plato's Academy. Uh, That was 
uh, pretty early on in his life. Uh, before that, as I said, he was born uh, a Macedonian. His uh, parents both, uh, in a separate instances, they both died when he was quite young, and he ended up being raised by his older sister and her husband. Uh, after a while, going to Athens to uh, obtain a higher education, where he enrolled in Plato's Academy. So after 20 years at the academy... Uh, How long do most people spend in college? I mean, I know some people do spend 20 years in college, but that's generally because they just keep changing their major. <laughs> well, I, you could almost say the same with him and, at the academy. Uh, the academy was not a classroom as we think about it. It was heavily conversational-based. Imagine an entire uh, school structure based around the same... Uh, dialogue learning structure that we saw in Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that's an interesting idea there, just that different, um, more of an unstructured education system, I would say, uh, which which still, some people still believe in that kind of uh, uh, structure today too. I, I, being formerly homeschooled, I've, I've gotten to see a lot of that. So some of that is still around. So that is kind of an interesting concept and an interesting idea. And of course, it, it has some benefits to it, would have some downfalls to it, but uh, it would probably be better for the individual more than it would be for the uh, for a standardized uh, I ideology there, which is interesting that Plato would structure it that way. Uh, yeah, it definitely was. But the entire idea was trying to find truth through dialogue. Uh, so uh, after a while, uh, Plato, of course, uh, eventually passed away. He died. And the issue came up on who was going to take over directorship of the academy. Most people thought it would be his greatest student, uh, Aristotle. But as we said earlier, Aristotle's views were heavily different than Plato's. And instead, Plato's nephew uh, was chosen to lead the academy. Uh, I don't remember Plato's nephew's name, but obviously that should uh, give a pretty good summary as to which one ended up becoming more influential. Yeah, exactly. So, so what did Aristotle do after this? So he's no longer the uh, director, you know, he's not in line to be the director, he doesn't get the director of the academy. Uh, so does he just, you know, stay and play second fiddle at the academy? Does he go off and pout and cry, or what, what does he do? Uh, well... Right after that, he leaves Athens. Uh, the reason is a bit of a debate. Some believe it was kind of the pouting over not being selected as the new leader of the academy. Others believe it was a, a rising sentiment at the time of uh, in Athens of anti-Macedonian feelings. Uh, some believe it was a combination of both. I'm not a historian. I'm barely a philosopher. So we're just going to go with... Uh, that he left Athens for whatever reason. So uh, shortly after that, they went uh, to a town in Macedonia, him and his family. Uh, that was there that he started uh, studying biology and began writing on those topics. Uh, after uh, being there for a while, uh, the uh, king of that city-state that had invited him there uh, was eventually uh, kidnapped, killed. Uh, so he fled again to uh, another island where he continued studying biology until he was uh, requested to be a teacher once again. 
uh, this time by Philip II, the king of Macedonia. Uh, he was asked to come and tutor his son, Alexander, who would later become Alexander the Great. Well, that's a that's a pretty good feather in the cap there to say, you know, you got to teach Alexander the Great, the, the one who went on to basically, you know, conquer the world and be one of the greatest leaders of all time. That's not too shabby, not too shabby. Absolutely. And the influence that Aristotle had on him is uh, obvious. It's unquestionable. Uh, so Aristotle t started teaching Alexander to uh, who would become the great at uh, the age of 13. Uh, so the reason behind this was his father, Philip II, uh, viewed himself as a uh, warlord or more barbaric than he would like to be. So uh, with his son Alexander uh, uh, showing many of the traits that uh, Philip did in uh, that eagerness for war and that barbarism, uh, Philip II wanted to balance that with uh, moral and intellectual ideals as well. So he asked Aristotle to provide that half of the equation. That's that's interesting too, especially as you know when we get looking into this Nicomachean ethics, it'll be interesting to see some of those ethics that were instilled, the uh, the moral philosophy and things like that that were instilled into Alexander the Great. Um, any anything else we should know about Aristotle? Uh, sure. So just to finish up the story of his life, eventually he did finish uh, tutoring Alexander when he uh, assumed power uh, at the age of 16 while his father was outwaging war. Uh, shortly after Alexander fully assumed the throne, uh, one of the first places he conquered was Athens, paving the way for Aristotle to return where he did and opened up a rival school to Plato's Academy, which he called the Lyceum. Uh, he ran that school successfully for many years, teaching not only philosophy, but uh, any area of study that he could possibly think of, uh, including biology, astronomy, physics, logic, rhetoric. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, the Athenians uh, overthrew their uh, new Macedonian rulers, uh, Aristotle being one of the most prominent Macedonians in the city-state of Athens, uh, was targeted and was actually charged with impiety, the same charge that was brought against Socrates, not paying tribute to the Athenian gods. Aristotle not vowing that he would not allow Athens to sin against philosophy so greatly twice, uh, fled to a uh, island in the Mediterranean where eventually he did die of old age. That's that's kind of funny there, that they wouldn't sin against philosophy uh, that greatly twice. Uh, it's, it, it's also interesting just kind of getting the the, the perspective of Aristotle's life and, and comparing him to Plato. And if you haven't checked out the uh, the third episode of the Wit Pod, the What is Truth podcast, you need to check that out. You can find that at uh, on iTunes or Google Play um, or SoundCloud, just about anywhere you can find a podcast. Uh, all you have to do is type in the GK Podcast Network. You can also find it at uh, thegatekeepersonline.com. But um, one thing that really strikes me of just comparing kind of the life and some of the philosophy just right away, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Travis, it sounds like Aristotle had a much broader view uh, of life, so to say, 
than what uh, Plato had. In fact, one of the things that you mentioned was rhetoric. Uh, Aristotle believed in rhetoric, and if I remember right, Plato didn't have much room for rhetoric. It was always just logic. He believed the best idea should win out, not necessarily uh, presentation or convincing. Absolutely. Uh, like I've said earlier, everything uh, with Aristotle had to be uh, proven true. It just couldn't be found logically true. Obviously, logic can uh, lead to very uh, drastic conclusions. One of the greatest examples I think of this is a scene from a, uh, a British uh, comedy movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There's that uh, scene where uh, they're trying to try someone as a witch, and through the use of logic, uh, the knight that's kind of overseeing this trial decides that uh, if this woman weighs as much as a duck, then she is a witch. Obviously, to us, that doesn't make any sense, but it is a result of logical thinking. Obviously, there can be issues with logical thinking, but at some point, we have to see a difference between what can we can find through sheer logic and what can actually be evidenced. Well, and like we went over in the uh, first episode, something can be logic, logical and it can be false at the same time. And so that's something to remember here. You have uh, logical and true, you have logical and false, and then you have uh, illogical and true and illogical and false. All of those things can happen. Absolutely. Except in Monty Python, where apparently the woman did weigh as much as a duck. Well, it's a flesh wound. That's all I have to say. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I don't know how to recover from that. So we'll just move on. Um, what what are some of the core tenets of Nicomachean ethics, and, and why in the world uh, did Aristotle name it Nicomachean? So uh, first, uh, Nicomachean ethics is named for uh, what's widely uh, it's widely believed to be named for his son, Nicomachus, uh, who was named after Aristotle's father of the same name. There is a little bit of a debate on who it's named after, but the wide consensus is it was named after his son. Uh, in this book, Nicomachean Ethics, isn't actually a full book written by Aristotle, but a collection of uh, his uh, lecture notes and teachings. So not as much of a... Uh, exact singular piece such as the Republic was with Plato, but uh, still nonetheless uh, very important and influential, and a lot of topics are incredibly related. Uh, I'd say that the biggest topic that we'd have to start with would be the one that is presented in the uh, first chapter, and that would be uh, what he believes the purpose of life was. So. And, I mean, isn't that the great philosophical question right there, just to ask, what is the purpose of life. Not to throw out a, another bad movie reference, but that answer is 42. I, I don't think I know that movie. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yep, I've never seen that one. So, uh, th This is why I'm not a great philosopher. My, my uh, uh, cultural reference game is, is, is pretty low. I've, I've had that pointed out to me on, on several occasions, but I, I just go, you know, if it's not the Beverly Hillbillies, why watch it? I won't argue with you on that one, but so <laughs> let's actually look at what Aristotle thought the purpose of life was. Now, this idea that he had has actually uh, really been sustained through the centuries and is one of the uh, great ideas behind 
uh, the founding of our country. And that is that the purpose of life is to pursue happiness. Now, th- this is going to be really interesting to get into because, uh, first of all, as Travis mentioned, this is one of the great uh, foundations of our nation. You know, we have um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But this is also the most twisted and unknown and misconstrued uh, uh, idea, too, on the foundation of our, our country. Um, because people take this to mean all kinds of different things. And the reality of it is, is that it actually has a pretty historic general meaning. Now, then there becomes some differences, uh, as we're going to find out when, when it comes to Scripture. Um, scripture always sets things in the right, and that includes these philosophies. But uh, the, the pursuit of happiness, what, what are your thoughts on that? Right, so uh, the first thing we have to look at is what is happiness. Now, uh, one of the biggest... Uh, confusions that comes with talking about this is uh, the difference between uh, what Aristotle meant by happiness and what we view it as today. Today, happiness is viewed as whatever gives us pleasure in the moment. Whatever is giving us pleasure right now, what makes you smile, what makes you uh, joyful right now in the moment. Whereas uh, the happiness that Aristotle was talking about uh, had a uh, connotation more of success, fulfillment, and flourishing. Uh, the Greek word being uh, eudaimonia. Wow, that sounds Greek to me. Yes, it does. See, I'm just here to make smart remarks. That's really all I'm here for. <laughs> Which, uh, if you are uh, familiar with looking at the Greek foundations of the New Testament, uh, is actually not widely used as a word for happiness in the New Testament, which I was uh, kind of surprised about in one sense and kind of not at the same time. Uh, if I've ever studied uh, Greek in the New Testament, you'll know that, uh, like, for example, the in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, in the old King James Version, love is translated as charity. Uh, New King James or many other versions, it's just translated as love. But uh, studying the Greek, we see that there are many different words that can be translated as love, each holding a different meaning. We won't get into that today, but uh, there is a similar issue with happiness in that there are uh, different words in the Greek that are translated to happiness as English, this being one of them. That's that, that's an interesting idea because, um, so as you know, I'm a big fan of Sir William Blackstone. I, I think probably anybody who listens to any of the podcasts or uh, or any of the, the works that I do, you probably know that I, I really like Sir William Blackstone. And we look at this idea of um, the pursuit of happiness. And, and just to go right along with what Travis uh, was defining happiness as uh, with, with Aristotle, and here's maybe a little bit more refined idea uh, on that to take it just to clean it up just a little bit from what Aristotle had, because uh, you know Sir William Blackstone came after and is building upon those, fa- those logical and philosophical foundations. Uh, Blackstone says this, that man should pursue his own happiness. This is the foundation of what we call ethics or natural law. And so it's not the idea of um, a hedonistic idea of happiness, which is what we have today. It's the idea of actually what is truly best ultimately, not what's best in the moment or upon favorable circumstances uh, or lucky circumstances. But it's really this idea of uh, of pursuing a, a ethical 
uh, purity or what is actually right in life. Absolutely. And that is why I believe that uh, Aristotle was, other than his political ideals, uh, was a uh, big influence on a lot of our founding fathers. Uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson, uh, uh, having such an extensive collection of books, one of his uh, favorite works being the works of Aristotle. Uh, he was absolutely heavily influenced by that and even donated his library to uh, be the foundation for the Library of Congress. Uh, we see a lot about uh, some of the other things that we're getting ready to talk about in the Comachian Ethics and influencing Benjamin Franklin. Uh, now, uh, the way that Aristotle says is best to pursue happiness in your life is to pursue a life of virtue. Now, Benjamin Franklin, uh, from the time when he was, I can't remember exactly when, it was around 20 years old, and he continued this through the rest of his life, kept a, a journal every day, and it consisted of three parts. Uh, the first was his daily schedule, uh, which uh, for us right now bears not really any meaning. Uh, second part, he wrote down on each day, in the beginning of the day, what good he was planning on doing that day and he came back to it in the evening and wrote what good he did do that day. And the last part, and uh, what's uh, most important to us at this moment, was he kept a chart of different virtues that he sought to attain. And each day that he didn't believe he did not live up to that virtue, uh, he put an X in the box. And his goal through his life was trying to make those uh, X's appear less and less. And that that's one of the most practical ways I've seen someone apply uh, this idea of virtue to their lives. That's that's interesting. That was Ben Franklin, correct? Yes. Yeah. That, that's, that's an interesting thing, especially because, uh, you, you know, Ben Franklin... Uh, he had a an interesting life, you know. He was uh, was not a Christian, um, but he would have been categorically a, a Christian if if this if that makes sense. Most um, of his life, he was what is called a deist. He more or less believed in the existence of God, but not so much in uh, exactly what is purported through Scripture, although it is argued that he possibly uh, converted to being a full uh, theistic Christian as we know it uh, very late in his life, but that is not 100% confirmed one way or the other. Yeah, and, and one quote uh, I'm reminded of um, is is that he was asked, or he said, if Jesus is the, uh, the actual Son of God, I do not know, but uh, this I know I'm sure to find out, uh, or are soon to find out, because he was it was at the end of his life that he said that. And so I, I would say that he probably didn't uh, go and convert to Christianity, but um, he was the one, uh, while the, the Constitution was being put together, he was the one who called Congress to go into stop and to pray. And I mean, I, I wish I had the quote right in front of me. It's an incredible thing that he does. And it's, it, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's one of those ideas of he, he wasn't a, a Christian, perhaps theologically, and, and I don't think that we'll probably see him in heaven. Uh, unless there was a late conversion, as, as like Travis said. But uh, he would probably have been considered a categorical Christian, as in the idea of he would have been uh, outside of orthodoxy. Um, but the idea of he probably still would have claimed something similar to a Christian faith, 
which I'm not trying to say that in a theological sense why that's a big deal, but it's a big deal as to how someone lives their life uh, and the ethics in which they apply to their life, uh, specifically the end of his life. You can even see uh, those ideas in his journal. If you look at his daily schedule, one of the first things listed every day was, uh, as he wrote it to, uh, I don't remember exactly word for word, but it was a uh, address uh, ultimate goodness or something to that extent. And by that, he meant uh, to address God and to pray to him. Mm-hmm. Why he chose to call him that, I'm not exactly sure. But another thing you see in his journal is he didn't just write down virtues that he sought to attain, but he also wrote a definition for them. Uh, one of the virtues he sought to attain was humility. And for its def- definition, he wrote down to imitate Socrates and Jesus. That's interesting. That's interesting. So uh, Ben Franklin and, and Thomas Jefferson also, and, and perhaps some others, were, were very uh, influenced by Aristotle. And re- remind me of the Greek word for happiness again here. Uh, we're looking at eudaimonia. Eudaino- I See, that's why I had you do it, because I, I can't say it. That's actually why, because I've got the word right in front of me and this quote. Eudaimonia. that sound right? Something like that. Something like that. Uh, so this is a quote from Ben Shapiro uh, on this idea of happiness, and he says, The very terminology for happiness is imbued with such meaning in both Judeo-Christian and Greek context. The Hebrew Bible calls happiness simcha, and Aristotle called happiness eudaimonia. What does the Bible mean by Simca? It means right action in accordance with God's will, which that's building just a little bit on top of Aristotle. Of course, Aristotle didn't quite come to that conclusion, uh, but he did come to a conclusion about happiness and this pursuit of happiness. Um, And he he went and he basically makes uh, an ethical standard, but he made them based on virtues. Yes. Now, first... I want to put a pin in that idea right there because I want to come back to that quote exactly later. Okay, we'll come back to it. But uh, So before we get into that, though, we have to look at uh, how Aristotle uh, defined these virtues. Now, uh, The virtues he went through were uh, different things that we would commonly define as virtues today. That part uh, doesn't really change. Ideas such as courage, temperance, humility, uh, but... Uh, whereas today we see those as a straight objective ideal with their opposite being a vice, such as uh, courage and cowardice, uh, Aristotle saw it as more of a uh, scaled system, whereas uh, there is a uh, virtue somewhere in the middle between two vices, a vice of deficiency and a vice of excess. So one of the uh, best-known examples, and actually the one that he used to finally convince Alexander the Great to come around to his teachings, was uh, an example that he used with courage. Now, if you are a soldier uh, back at this time, uh, you you need to have courage. Uh, any soldier at any time will need to have courage, but. Uh, Aristotle defined it as you have to have the right amount of courage. If you have too much courage, your soldier is going to break ranks, charge at the enemy by himself, and think he can take them all down himself. We call that stupidity today, but y- you know, you know. <laughs> and that is kind of the line of thinking Aristotle took. That was overly rash, 
uh, uh, ridiculous thinking, uh, obviously that soldier would be killed. Meanwhile, on the idea of a deficiency of courage, a soldier can see the approaching army, drop his sword, and run for the hills, and he would be a coward. Where Now, the virtue in there lies in finding that middle ground, what is necessary at that time to have. And that is also uh, another thing that uh, the scale is based off of is different situations, uh, according to Aristotle, required different amounts of virtue. Okay, so that's that's kind of interesting. There, you know, and, and it's tough because I sit here and I'm going, um, I see Aristotle's point uh, with the idea of, of virtues and the idea of uh, excess and, and and not enough there and and want, but I do sit there and and see where he probably starts to live and his ethics start to become into a a gray area uh, and live within a gray area much more than a black and white. Would that would that be uh, accurate? Absolutely. This idea, I believe, could. I haven't fully uh, researched this area of philosophy yet. So, and again, I do not purport to be an expert at any of these things. But I believe that I, I just say he's an expert, and and, and so I, I'm I'm going to believe that he is. I hope you you do too. Well, this is an idea that we'll research and look into in a later episode for sure. But I do believe that. Uh, this idea is kind of what led to the foundation of situational ethics by Joseph Fl- Francis Fletcher, uh, and and it's interesting because really um, the the axiom that we, that somebody takes is is ends up what defines um, ethics in in the person's life, and in uh, Plato we could see that it was it was very much a, a logic that he took. Uh, and in uh, Joseph Fletcher, we could see that it was actually a view of uh, love. Now, it, was, it ended up being a false agape love, specifically a love of himself. Um, but here with Aristotle, what would you say is that, that defining factor, that, that axiom there that he goes in and takes as uh, the, the sole thing that his ethics is built around? It all has to come back to that idea of eudaimonia. Now, as we said, that is what is commonly translated as happiness, but it also carries those connotations of success, fulfillment, flourishing, and also carries the idea of uh, your reputation in that society. Right. So, for example, uh, we wouldn't really understand it much if we just went through and looked at it through the lens of the exact word happiness. But Aristotle talks about how a person's uh, eudaimonia can be affected after their death. That's interesting because it has to be, do with his reputation, is what he's saying. So, so that's why, right? Exactly. It person's happiness, as we view it today, cannot be changed after uh, their death, but a person's reputation absolutely could be. Right. So one of my favorite authors uh, of all time is a guy by the name of Oswald Chambers. Uh, you probably know him from My Utmost for His Highest. He really wasn't super popular or overly popular when he was living. Uh, so according to Aristotle here, now now understand here, we stick with the biblical ethic, but we're just living in a hypothetical here. Uh, so his eudaino, I can't even say the word now, but his, his view of happiness here in the Greek word, uh, <laughs> it would have been less than ideal perhaps, or maybe not 
as good when he was living as it is now today after he's dead, uh, after his wife went and took and compiled all of his works and attributed everything to him, although she was the one who compiled it and he was the one who did the works. Um, but it, he wasn't the one who published these things. And, you know, it's, it's like, well, he's the author, uh, although he's not the one who wrote them. He was just simply the one who spoke these things. Um, and his view is, we view him better today. His reputation is better today than it was then. Exactly. So he would have higher eudaimonia today than he would have uh, when he was living. And that can also work conversely. A person with a great high eudaimonia can uh, lose it after their passing. So uh, that is really the scale that is given uh, that we can look at objectively ourselves for uh, Aristotle's idea of virtue, it being on that scale. Uh, but as we said, obviously this can lead into a huge gray area, so anyone that would be trying to live up to Aristotle's ethics, which I wouldn't wholeheartedly recommend at all, but... <laughs> It would require an inordinate amount of honesty with yourself in order to actually even be somewhat functional. So, and one of the problems here that we have is this eudaimonia. Um, it's it's not uh, anchored in an actual construct. Is I mean to take it kind of to the next uh, level level down here to get just a little bit deeper. The, the issue with this is that it's, it, it, we're, what's the moral arbiter? And so there, there isn't this, this true objective morality uh, within, I mean, it, it's per, Aristotle's pursuing an objective morality. I, I think that's safe to say. Absolutely. He's absolutely pursuing uh, ethical, moral, virtuous life. But as we looked at with Plato, if you're not rooted to a standard, Ultimately, uh, you're going to fall short. Not only did Aristotle not have a standard, which, uh, as we looked with Plato, can only truly be found in God's Word, but Aristotle openly rejected the idea of having uh, a God as an arbiter for a scale. Uh, again, going back to the idea of he only believed truth could be found through evidence, and he purported through his life that even if a god were to exist, that there was no evidence that that god cared how we lived. So he would have been a true deist, believing that God, uh, if God exists, he is uh, distant at best. Yes, and Aristotle continued to hold that view through his life. He, uh, as far as we know, was never an atheist, but he was absolutely a deist. And so this is interesting because a common view uh, in, in Bible times and, and around this, this time frame would be that God's primary attribute was apathy. Uh, in, and this is more in the Hebrew idea, but you can see this even in Aristotle here, uh, is the idea that, that God just doesn't care about the creation, um, which actually plays in quite a bit with a lot of the uh, theistic evolution um, that, that people in Christian circles today like to, to go and to put in, that God started something and then left it alone. Now, of course, the Bible goes and teaches directly against that, that God is active. He's not just transcendent, but he's also eminent right in our life and acting in our life. Yes. But it's this idea of 
of this, I'm for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it scaled virtue that uh, has really been held through much of uh, modern Western culture. Uh, shortly after Aristotle uh, passed, his works kind of went underground for a while. As we said, there was high anti-Macedonian sentiment in the Athenian uh, culture at that time. Uh, his works were uh, hidden through a good chunk of the next few centuries until they were uncovered, uh, added with uh, Christian theology at the time, and this new system that was kind of conjured up as a mixture between it by uh, Thomas Aquinas became the uh, go-to methodology for virtue and theology for the Catholic Church even up until the present. So that's that's interesting. Well, uh, and I'm looking forward because we are eventually going to go over Aquinas's uh, philosophy some and and just kind of look at that. Uh, but we're not going to do that today. <laughs> so, um, what? Uh, what were some other uh, tenets here to the scaled virtue that uh, Aristotle had, uh, or, or what were some conclusions that perhaps that led to? So, first off, uh, again, making a uh, direct contradiction with his teacher Plato, Plato believed that the only thing needed to be a good person was knowledge of how to be a good person. He believed that simply knowing would uh, make that change in a person. Whereas Aristotle believed that uh, it required action in your life. You had to actively work toward it. And uh, he made a great analogy in uh, his works for that, uh, where he combined, I'm sorry, not combined, but where he compared it to the Olympic Games, saying that it's not the uh, person that uh, looks the most successful or appears to be the best that will win the prize, but it is the man actually in the arena that will win the prize. That's that's pretty good. I, I know how to uh, dunk a basketball, and I know how to make a three-point shot, and I know how to dribble a basketball, but that knowledge does not put me into the NBA. <laughs> no, it, no, it does not. But it's that idea of uh, requiring action that... Um, made him starkly different. Not only that, but uh, his continued to influence uh, leaders up through the present time. One of the uh, best examples I have that is a speech given by uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, aptly called the Man in the Arena speech. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly short speech as speeches go, uh, so I'm just going to quote a short bit of that. Uh, again, this is Theodore Roosevelt's speech. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the e arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. So, it this idea that uh, Roosevelt uh, felt so strongly about and that Aristotle uh, came up with was that it didn't even matter so much the success you had in it, but that uh, constant work towards self-improvement and into that constant work toward living a virtuous life that mattered. That's that's interesting. So 
uh, Aristotle majored in on actions, whereas in Plato majored in on uh, knowledge. Absolutely. Not that Aristotle denied knowledge or anything like that, but but that would be kind of the stark difference there between the two. Yes, and I think that is the one of the biggest areas on where Aristotle became so much more influential than Plato at point is that his was more practical, his was more uh, grounded than Plato's was. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Plato got pretty far out there. Yes. It, like we said, logic can be taken to some pretty far extremes. And so um, are there any other big differences? Because we we're talking ahead of time uh, before we started recording this, and, and you mentioned that basically Plato and Aristotle are like two sides to one coin. The idea of, of course, they're both foundations of Western philosophy, uh, but they're they're completely opposites. Although we, we do draw from both of them, and, and just a reminder, Western civilization is very much the idea of basically answering the questions that Aristotle and and Plato and Socrates and guys like that, the, the Greek philosophers, excuse me, that, that they asked, we answer them with, with the Bible, specifically the Ten Commandments, giving a true uh, moral uh, foundation and a moral anchoring uh, to go into, to find out how, how to apply virtue, how to apply, um, uh, I just completely forgot uh, Plato's whole philosophy there, but, but how to apply their uh, Plato's teachings, that's what I'm just going to leave it at. <laughs> well, that is an excellent excellent thing that you should go over but uh, before we start on that I'd just like to again look back at that idea of uh, how the Hebrew Bible uh, defined happiness yeah and that was that idea of Simca now again what did that have for uh, definition there uh, it, it means right action in accordance with God's will Absolutely. Right action in accordance with God's will. It all comes back to that idea of it actually requires action, not just a knowledge of what is right, not just a knowledge in this example of God's will, but in actually following through with that. Action was the uh, great importance there in his idea of virtue. Right. And so uh, here we see that that Aristotle uh, in his ethics is perhaps getting closer uh, to a biblical ethic than uh, what, what Plato had. But the place where, uh, where he falls short, once again, is that idea of uh, he has the action right, he has the virtue right, he has that happiness right, but he misses the in accordance with God's will. Absolutely. But him not uh, ever being exposed to that idea of uh, the, he never was exposed to the scriptures, and I believe that is what he lacked there again, but... Uh, so going back to uh, that dichotomy that forms between Plato and Aristotle, uh, again, I don't purport to be a philosophical expert by no means. I don't have any formal training in it. This is just my personal readings and observations. But uh, it seems to me I've seen a lot of examples throughout human history of this same dichotomy forming in different areas. Uh, so... We're not looking at it exactly today, but Aristotle's political works uh, were absolutely uh, uh, very different than Plato's, almost stark opposites. Uh, and just a quick reminder, Plato uh, basically believed in um, not an oligarchy. He, he believed in a—I mean, it was called the Republic, but we, as we discussed, it wasn't really a republic. Uh, he, he kind of believed in a— 
uh, aristocracy was was kind of more the the, the better way to, to look at that. Yes, he believed in a uh, specific ruling class, as we looked at with uh, his book, The Republic. Again, not a republic, not even in any sense of the word a republic. Uh, his views were that everything uh, political-wise should be for the benefit of the society. Everything should be formed around that, what is best for society as a whole. Whereas Aristotle, in writing his books, more uh, focused on individual liberties. And we see this same dichotomy pop up time and time again, a uh, almost precursor in different civilizations between what we now view as conservatism and progressivism. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it uh, not only in Western philosophy between Aristotle and Plato, uh, but we also see in Eastern philosophy. Uh, again, not going too much into it today, but uh, I believe it was with the downfall of the Qin Dynasty in China that uh, a lot of the uh, political and uh, provincial leaders now finding themselves out of work and... Uh, uh, without any real prospects at the time, uh, seemed to take to philosophy, uh, looking at different ways of what is the best way to form a society, what is the best uh, philosophy for people to follow themselves. And that kind of broke down uh, into what is called the uh, Thousand Schools of Thoughts. And uh, out of those, uh, two kind of emerged as the uh, most popular out of them, one being uh, Taoism and the other being Confucianism. Again, uh, you'll start to look at their philosophies, kind of uh, precursors again to progressivism and uh, conservatism. We even see this in modern times. Uh, uh, just, I believe it was in the 70s, 60s or 70s, uh, we saw uh, two lecturers at Yale uh, one of them, uh, John Rawls, wrote a book called The Theory of Justice, which uh, another episode that I'd like to go over eventually and look at, but uh, his work being a big foundation for modern progressivism and a direct rebuttal to it written by another Yale lecturer, Robert Nozick, uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which founded a, a big look at modern conservative thinking. Right. And this is, you know, I think this is uh, something that we're always going to be seeing um, throughout history is that you're going to have those who rise up with, uh, with, with conservative thoughts. And, and, and I believe conservative thoughts are ultimately contrived from Scripture. Uh, now, of course, people don't always adhere to Scripture. I mean, uh, I quoted Ben Shapiro just a little bit ago. Um, ben Shapiro is not a Christian. He doesn't believe in the New Testament at all. Uh, in that sense, he, he's only, he, he's a Jew, he's an Orthodox Jew, uh, and so he has some of the foundation, but he doesn't have the total right foundation, and so he does eventually err in those things, but his school of thought is very much conservatism, whereas then you have uh, then other schools of thought uh, that come, come up are in that modern-day progressivism. Um, which, you know, we could name all kinds of people for that today. That's, that's definitely becoming a, a dominant thought. Uh, but it is interesting even seeing this in Aristotle versus uh, Plato, specifically within the, the political realm. Um, as you mentioned there, Plato 
very much for the state, whereas in Aristotle was very much for the individual. Yes. Now, it, I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, all progressive or liberal ideas are inherently wrong, but uh, some of them have, I believe, kind of strayed from what their purpose was intended for. There uh, are some good ideas in uh, progressivism and liberalism, such as uh, equality of opportunity and others such as that. But. Right, and the problem is is when they start uh, changing uh, that idea of egalitarianism, that equality of opportunity, uh, or, well, I should say equality of opportunity to egalitarianism, which is equality of outcome, and that, that becomes a, a, an issue there. Exactly, but uh, either way, we still see this difference between uh, progressivism and conservatism pop up time and time again in history. I just thought that was kind of a interesting observation to come across that this has hap happened uh, multiple times throughout history, that there are uh, two thinkers that uh, come up from the same area the uh, around the same time, both in contradiction to each other and one seeming to represent each ideal. Right, and it, it almost seems like Aristotle probably became... Plato's best student simply by asking the uh, poking holes in Plato's argument, uh, kind of a thing. Uh, yes. I mean, we you know we don't have the we weren't there. Uh -huh. It would have been fun to be a fly on the wall, but it, it seems like that was kind of the the idea here is the reason he came up with such a different philosophy is because he got went and saw the the downfalls in Plato's uh, teaching, and so therefore he took almost a a polar opposite of his teaching, which of course led to him not becoming the schoolmaster. Um. <laughs> exactly. It's that he went and he saw the downfalls in it. Again, Aristotle was heavily, uh, his ideas were heavily based on evidence, which is another reason why he got so uh, influential in the sciences as well. He uh, thought everything needed evidence behind it, whereas Plato just simply needed logic. Right. And so that, uh, I mean, that, that that's an interesting concept there because basically um, uh, Plato is just simply saying let's let's think linearly, let's let's think what leads to the next thing and and what is the the proper conclusion. Um, but then Aristotle was going and saying no, let's let's go and observe, and then let's make a uh, uh, come to a conclusion. And and it really comes down to that idea of inductive versus deductive reasoning, um, which. Uh, Plato was, was more of a deductive reasoning and um, Aristotle an inductive. Uh, what else do we need to go over with Aristotle? It, this is such a... It's not even nearly as long as the Republic, but there are so many ideas in it that it's hard to uh, break it all down into a, uh, a lot of uh, simpler to understand ideas and hard to summarize it, I'd say. Uh, but the uh, kind of to, to, to give a summary here of Aristotle is that he's, he's kind of the opposite of Plato philosophically, um, but he, he uses uh, this virtue uh, or, or happiness uh, as the, the system uh, for finding out his ethics. And so he's always seeking to find a balance of um, 
uh, of two vices, uh, and, and the two vices are, are excess and, and not enough, essentially. And uh, to a degree, I to a degree I understand where he's coming from, um, because obviously, as as mentioned with with uh, courage and cowardliness, the idea is is that you want the proper amount of courage. But of course, the issue is is I, I think that uh, if you go and you compare it to the Word of God, the Word of God wouldn't go and call that a uh, too much of a virtue or too much of a vice or or whatever. I think it would would recategorize that as stupidity. <laughs> uh, and so I, I would say that there, there are multiple categories, um, but essentially they all line up uh, biblically as, as right or wrong rather than seeking to find a balance. It's seeking uh, to just find what does God say is right and what does God say is wrong. And that would be the, the main difference in um, Christian morality versus Aristotle. Yes. Now, uh, in researching this, one of the areas where I see people try to insert this idea into scripture is the idea of anger. Now, obviously, uh, uh, the Bible says we are not to be angry with our neighbor, but uh, people try to insert this idea of, well, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that. There are times when we are to have righteous anger as well, and they try to use that as an example to insert this into scripture. Right, and, and I think that's a you know that's where it gets interesting because it's it's that idea of um, I think the Bible is introducing a new category, a an anger that is uh, that is wrapped around with righteousness or wrapped around with holiness, uh, ultimately, and and that's where where the difference comes in is that it's it's wrapped around with that, uh, whereas then it's not saying you have too much anger or not enough anger, um, but uh, I can see where where Aristotle was aiming and just falling short. Absolutely. Another place that we see that uh, tried to be inserted into scripture is actually the idea of murder. <laughs> so, uh, obviously... How one, do you murder someone too much? Is that like digging up their body and killing them again, or, or, or what? Well, <laughs> the way that I saw it was, obviously, we see the commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. That sounds pretty straightforward, uh, but... Uh, a lot of us out there, especially those that subscribe to uh, dispensational theology, will also see where uh, the idea of government was introduced that that was introduced with the idea of a death penalty. Absolutely. So, obviously, Scripture says, Thou shalt not murder, but it also commands a death penalty. So, there, according to Aristotle's thinking, uh, the act of killing someone would be just and virtuous because you're doing it in accordance with that penalty. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's that's an interesting idea where Aristotle comes in and brings that in. Now, of course, uh, you know, what, what we would go and say is we would say it has to do with innocence versus guilty, and so there's a difference between killing and murdering, um, which, which I, I understand people criticize that uh, when it comes to Christian ethics, but it comes down to that simple idea of uh, someone's innocent and someone's guilty. And, and so, I mean, I... I mean, as Travis mentioned, we would ascribe to the death penalty uh, as a, a righteous thing for the four right reasons. Of course, somebody stealing a piece of bubble gum from uh, the local convenience store shouldn't get the death penalty. I right, hope right Travis? <laughs> I'd hope not. But I, there are some cultures where that is an option, but I, I don't subscribe to that idea. 
again, there's places where this is uh, consistently being tried to be inserted into scripture, and uh, with the works of like uh, Thomas Aquinas, it uh, has been inserted into scripture and theology. Yeah, and then it'll be interesting, um, uh, because if I remember right, Aquinas seeks to uh, find a balance between uh, sacred and secular kind of a thing. His big idea was the marriage of uh, Christian and Greek thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, both are important in history. Both have their uh, applications, but ultimately, one is a work of philosophy, and the other is the living word of God. There's a difference. Right. Now, of course, the, the living word of God gives us our foundation for uh, for philosophy. And, and, and like I said, you know, the cool thing about Western philosophy is that it takes great questions. I mean, these are some of the greatest minds that have ever walked the face of the earth. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. And, and they ask incredible questions. But the problem is, is that they can't really come to a true objective answer that is, is, is rooted and truly grounded. It eventually comes down to, to a, a subjective answer, whether, whether or not they really like that or not, until you answer those questions with the Bible. And I think that's the coolest thing about Western philosophy, is that you find the greatest questions ever asked, and you answer them with the greatest book that's ever writ- been written, because it was written by God. Absolutely. And we... Again, we continually see how close uh, these philosophers came. Uh, like the entire idea of the pursuit of happiness being the uh, purpose of life. Uh, we see that, uh, in a sense, yes, that is the purpose of life, is the pursuit of happiness. But it's what are we defining that happiness in? Personal success and fulfillment? Uh, Obviously, being how this word eudaimonia is translated, but I believe the only way that you will be truly fulfilled is in living in God's will. That's right. It, it must be within living within God's will. And let me see if I can find this quote here. Um, I, there's probably about 400 different ways that'd be easier to find this quote than what I'm doing right now, but that's okay. I, I think I can still find it. Um, and it's, let's see here, it's uh, cited as, I think, number four is what I'm looking at here. Uh, instead of going right to my, my notes, uh, I'm <laughs> going to a paper I wrote. Uh, <laughs> probably not the easiest way to do that. Um, let's see here, we, we read that one here. Oh, it's five. There we go. Uh, five. Uh, this is from Sir William Blackstone. It says uh, that this or that action tends to man's real happiness and therefore very justly concluding that the performance of it is part of the, uh, of the law of nature, or, on the other hand, that this or that action is destructive to man's real happiness, and therefore that that law of nature forbids it. Now, of course, he's talking more of a philosophy of law here, whereas in Aristotle's talking about a philosophy of life, and they are two, two different things. Um, but essentially here to build off of what Aristotle's saying, that idea of the pursuit of happiness... The goal, ultimately, is to find what is that real happiness. Now, that real happiness, it, uh, some people would go and say it, it's found within ourself, and, and then it comes to that hedonistic view uh, that most people believe today. But what it was actually, our nation was built upon, uh, according to Sir William Blackstone, and, and building on the, uh, the ethical questions and the, the things like that that Aristotle and, and Plato and Socrates brought out, 
is that there is a, a real happiness that is for our ultimate benefit. Now, ultimately, as a, a Christian, we believe that our real happiness is that which will lead us to heaven eternally instead of to hell eternally. And ultimately, our real happiness is that we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, uh, before God. And so that is, is the, the true structure in which we look upon this. And of course, those things are found in the ethical uh, outlying of and the morality that's outlined in Scripture. And so that's where Aristotle just doesn't quite have it. <laughs> but he builds or, or starts, to, starts to build that structure, whereas in, uh, we can find that as, as to explain and, and look at how to live. And that's where he does an excellent job. Yes. Now, Aristotle, for centuries after his death and his works were resurrected, was considered the leading authority in just about any intellectual pursuit. Uh, it, his ideas were considered unquestionable, uh, ironically, which was kind of against his own ideals of uh, needing evidence behind things and uh, constantly challenging ideas, uh, him being one of the first people to develop a scientific method. Uh, but for centuries afterward, his ideas and uh, studies were considered the uh, defining truth on everything. If uh, you wrote or studied anything and came to a conclusion that was not what he came to, you were considered wrong just because you weren't agreeing with Aristotle. <laughs> that's that's pretty interesting. But it not, now, the issue that comes with that is uh, Aristotle is not the answer in everything. And this is the issue that I take with uh, Thomas Aquinas's works is that he was trying to insert philosophy into scripture. He was trying to insert Aristotle's ideals into scripture. He was trying to insert philosophy into scripture. Whereas the goal that should be taken in this idea, which I believe is true, Western culture is the marriage of Greek and uh, Christian thought. But instead of trying to use philosophy to answer scripture, we should be using scripture to answer philosophy. Right. We should be inserting scripture into philosophy, not the other way around. And that's that's the idea of, uh, right, I think I said that right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, scripture is the answer. It's not the one that's asking the questions. Absolutely. So, well, uh, I think we covered it pretty good. Yeah, I did. I do think we did. So that kind of uh, wraps up our uh, Greek foundation in philosophy. So where are we going to be moving to next? And hopefully it won't be so long uh, between podcasts here. That was that was definitely my fault. Um, I <laughs> We had some crazy stuff uh, pop up every time that me and Travis had it to like scheduled to sit down and to, to do this. We've had this on the docket for, I think, three months. <laughs> A bit of mine as well. I ended up, uh, My wife and I ended up moving in that time frame as well. So uh, we've got a a uh, nice uh, cabin-esque house out out in the country here. So that'll be a uh, fun one to, I think we're going to go record there when we look at uh, Walden uh, later in this series. Not sure when we'll do that, but... In the philosophies of Davy Crockett, too. <laughs> but uh, as far as where we're going next, uh, I believe we're going to uh, next look at uh, an actual philosopher king, as 
uh, Plato wanted and look at the works of Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. So that, that'll be pretty interesting here, and uh, we'll, that'll be finishing up this, this set of three, right? We're going to try to do a sets of three? Yeah. We, uh, obviously, most people looking at the uh, three people that are kind of a foundation for Western philosophy look at Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But uh, with our goal of comparing uh, actual written works to the Word of God, uh, we were not able to do that since Socrates never actually wrote anything down. He did not believe in the written word. So, Which is actually kind of interesting here. Well, I'll, we'll give you just a little little bonus. And, and that is that that kind of fits in with the, the Pharisees' philosophy. Now, I'm not trying to call Socrates a Pharisee. Understand that. Um, but the difference, one of the differences between the Pharisees and the, the scribes uh, was that the scribes would go and and preserve scripture through writing, and the Pharisees would go and preserve scripture through memory. They would actually go and memorize um, most, if not all, of the Torah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we look at that through that repeating and, and constantly remembering. And so that's, uh, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, little bit of a distinction there. And, and and also, you know, perhaps someday we'll get into the philosophy um, of something like uh, Muhammad and the Quran. Uh, and, and maybe looking at the hadiths and things like that, but uh, I'm just just spitballing here. But Muhammad actually also didn't write things down. Uh, he, I, I believe, he was illiterate and couldn't write. And so one of the things that that people remembered the Quran by in the in his teachings was uh, almost through rhythmic uh, chantings, uh, almost almost like the foundation for rap. And so it's uh, though Socrates uh, didn't write anything down. That's uh, nothing necessarily unique to him. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, people who believe that that was the wrong kind of um, philosophy for preserving works. Yes, so uh, obviously Socrates was wrong in that respect, that he believed that written word would uh, lead to the deterioration of real knowledge, but obviously we see that today. That's not quite the case. Right. It kind of adds to knowledge, but, you know. <laughs> but So to round out a nice even, I'd say even, but it's not number of three, uh, works. We're going to be looking at uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, him being a Roman emperor, kind of uh, round out this classical era of theology, uh, not theology, philosophy. Wrong, wrong study there. But uh, from there, we might we might go on to look at uh, some of these works that tried to uh, insert philosophy into scripture and try and flesh out that idea a little bit more. And from there, I'm not quite sure where we'll go. That could lead us any number of places. Yeah, that, and that's the cool thing about this is as long as people are thinking or not thinking, there is philosophy to discover. And we'll always be looking for that big question. We'll always be looking for what is truth. That's right. And for the What is Truth podcast, this is Pastor Sam. And this is Travis Webb. The Great Philosopher. <laughs> uh, have a great day and keep thinking.